All right, how's everyone doing? Great, great. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Brett. I am the students director here at Mercy. I think I may have come up a little bit early and may have blocked the screen for some of y'all. I just said welcome to Mercy, so glad that you guys are here. Um, y'all, I am really excited to be talking with you today. Uh, this week, we're actually going to be taking a week off from the Song of Solomon series, so you can take a sigh of relief. Uh, I'm not going to be talking about spicy picnics or clusters or Hebrew kissing or anything like that. Praise God. Uh, thankfully, our lead team made the wise decision of not letting the students guy get up here and talk about such a lofty subject. They said it was a little bit too touchy for me. So that was a pun. Some of you guys got it. Um, all right. That's my one joke about Song of Solomon. Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, but in all seriousness... Uh, can I just say, like, as thankful as I am that uh, I don't have to preach about such tough things that we've been talking about in the Song of Solomon series, I'm even more thankful that we have a pastor who doesn't shy away from those hard topics. Um, pastor Spence Shelton has labored really, really hard over these past eight weeks, and just in having conversations with him, Y'all, like he cares so deeply about you as the body and cares so deeply about you knowing what God's word says about things like love. And so y'all, can we just thank God for our pastor? Yeah, I am grateful for Pastor Spence. He is awesome. All right, if you would, you can turn your Bibles to Colossians. We're gonna be looking at Colossians chapter one today. Um, and as you're flipping there or scrolling there, I wanna start our time by asking a question. If there is one thing that someone needs to know about you to really know who you are, what is that thing? In other words, what makes you, you? For me, if you're going to know who I am, there's a few things that you need to know. You need to know that I am the third of four children and that I was raised in Indian Trail, North Carolina. And so that, is, that really defines a lot about who I am. For those of you who are into this, I'm an Enneagram type four, wing three, which I'm not really into it that much, but apparently that means that I don't think a lot of people understand me and that I find a lot of validation in the amount of things that I get done in a week, which is not always a good thing. Um, you need to know that I drink a pour over coffee every day and I drink it black because I think that's the only way you should drink coffee. So down with pumpkin spice lattes. You need to know that I'm married to Marley and she is my best friend in the world. You need to know that I love Jesus and I have a deep desire to make him known to people, which is why I'm standing here today. So those are some things that get down to the foundational level of who I am and what makes Brett Bolden, Brett Bolden. So my question for you is what are those things for you? So it's your turn now. So since I told you things about me, what I want you to do is I want you to turn to your neighbor and give your best shot of in one sentence, Tell them what is one thing that they need to know about you to know who you are. What makes you you? One sentence. All right? Got it? All right, go. All right, all right. We can bring it back in. I love hearing y'all talk this morning. All right, bring it back, bring it back. All right, you guys crushed it. I'm sure that that was super easy for you. If you used I love Jesus as your answer, that's like the cheat code, good job, but like that was the cheat code. Um, all right, here's why I wanted to do that exercise with you guys. 
So in the text that we're going to be looking at today, it's a very big text, the Apostle Paul is talking to the church at Colossae about who Jesus is at the most foundational level. He's revealing to them what makes Jesus, Jesus. And the reason he's doing this is because there had been false teachers who had come into this church and they were spreading a message that was contrary to the gospel. And what was resulting in it was this church was becoming confused and they were becoming stripped of the hope that they had. And so Paul writes to them and his message in the passage that we're gonna look at is this. This is Jesus and this is why you can hope in him. You see, when we tell others about who we are, we learn a lot of things, we grow into deeper relationships with one another, and it's a really good thing. But when we look at the person of Jesus and learn about who he is, something different happens. Something happens deep within our souls. When we look at who Jesus is, we see someone who we can place our entire hope in. And even more than that, we see someone who we were created to uh, place our entire hope in. And so that's my aim for us today as we look at this passage of scripture. I want to show you, I want to reveal to you who Jesus is and why you can hope in him today. Specifically, I want to speak to two people. So for the non-believer in the room, first I want to say welcome. We are so glad that you're here. And I don't know what brings you to church. Maybe you have a friend who was like, hey, you want to hang out this morning? And the next thing you know, you're pulling up in a church parking lot and now you're here. Or maybe you're here because you're, you're seeking and you're trying to understand like what you believe about God or even if you believe about God at all. And y'all, I believe that God has you here today so that you can hear about who Jesus is and so that you would place your hope in him. And for the believer in the room, I wanna to speak to you as well because y'all, I know that there are so many things in this world that try to strip us of the hope that we have in Jesus. Maybe like this has been a season of just having some doubts in God Maybe you have a uh, wayward family member and it's like brought about a deep struggle in your soul for you. Maybe it's been a, just a hard season in general. Whatever the case may be for you, my prayer is that as you hear and are reminded about who Jesus is, that you would decide again today to place your hope in him and to not waver in your belief. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take you through this text. Um, we're looking at eight. Uh, eight verses, and I'm going to take you through this text, and I'm going to show you three things that we see about who Jesus is and why this gives us hope. Sound good? All right, so that's where we're going. Uh, let me pray for us before we begin. Jesus, when your word goes out, it does not return void. You say, uh, Lord, you say that heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will never pass away. Jesus, you say my word will never pass away. And so as we look at the scriptures today, Jesus, we believe this is your word that you have given to us. And so God, just use this time. I don't care about my voice being heard. I care about your voice being heard. And so uh, for every single person in this room, God, would you speak to them? Meet them where they are. They're here today uh, and we wanna hear from you, Lord. And so we pray uh, that that would be the case. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so uh, we're gonna be looking at Colossians 1, 15 through 23. Uh, so here's what the text says. I'm gonna read it in its entirety. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. 
And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The word of the Lord. So the first thing that we're gonna see uh, about Jesus in our passage is this. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Paul lays this out really clearly in verses 15 through 17. He starts by writing, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So the first thing that we see Paul saying is that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Later on in verse 19 of this passage, Paul is going to write, in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And y'all, we could spend the entire time talking about this one verse alone, but I wanna boil it down very simply to you. What Paul is saying here is that if we want to know what God looks like, then we need to look no further than the person of Jesus. This word image here is the, is the Greek word icon, which is where we get the word icon from in our English. And it means likeness or representation. And so what Paul is saying is that Jesus is the very likeness of God because he is God. And y'all, this is incredible news for us because it means we don't have to guess what God is like. We have a crystal clear picture of who God is in Jesus. And Paul takes it a step further. He writes, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So what in the world does Paul mean when, he's, when he says he's the firstborn of all creation? Well, what he's not saying here is that Jesus is the firstborn among human beings. How do we know that? Well, if we remember from the creation account in Genesis 1, we see that the first two human beings created were Adam and Eve. And Paul is very aware of that. Like he knew the scriptures inside and out, probably better than all of us in this room. He was a Jew among Jews who was well acquainted with the Old Testament. And so rather than talking about Jesus being a literal firstborn, what Paul is referring to is a term of sovereignty. Psalm 89, 27 says this, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. In this Psalm, the writer is talking about a Messiah from the line of David who would one day come and would be the highest king over all the earth. And Paul is writing to the Colossian church, this king is Jesus. He's the king over all the earth because he is God. And Paul keeps going in verse 16. He says, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. How else do we see that Jesus is God? We see it in the fact that by him, all things were created. That's what Paul is saying here. Y'all, do you remember what the very first verse of the Bible says? It's real simple. Here's what it says. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So Paul is not mincing words here. He's saying that Jesus is the creator of everything. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Jesus. Why? 
because Jesus is God. Furthermore, Paul writes that all things were created for him. He's not only the creator, but he's the purpose of creation. And Jesus himself speaks of this in Revelation 22, 13. He says, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He's the creator, the beginning, and he's the purpose of creation, the end. Lastly, Paul writes in verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So Paul is talking about, big word here, the pre-existence of Jesus. He's saying that Jesus was there before everything else. The apostle John writes about this in John chapter one. He writes, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And as you go on in this passage in John, you find out that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so John was talking about Jesus. In the beginning was the word, in the beginning was Jesus. Jesus is before all things because Jesus is God. And not only is he before all things, but Paul writes that in him all things hold together. What Paul is saying here is that it is literally by the very power of Jesus that all things hold together. He's like the divine glue that holds our existence together. All right, I'm gonna stop there because uh, we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, so here's a quick summary of what we've seen so far. So Paul writes that Jesus is God because he is the image of God. He's the firstborn over all creation. He's the creator and the purpose of creation. He is before all things and he holds all things together. So what does this practically mean for us? Like how does this give us hope today? Here's why the reality of Jesus being God gives us hope. This gives us hope because it shows us that God relates to us on a personal level. Just like I said, because of Jesus, we don't have to wonder what God is like. He's not just some ethereal God who sits in the heavens and rules over all creation and is disconnected from us. No, in Jesus, we see that God took on human flesh, the same human flesh that we have. He understands temptation and suffering because he himself went through it. He knows what it means to be criticized and wrongly accused. He knows what it means to hurt. He knows what it means to lose a loved one and to mourn over them. He knows what it means to have a crazy, chaotic schedule and to like just be tired. He knows what it means to experience hunger and thirst. And he even knows what it means to experience death. He relates to us and has gone so far as to die on a criminal's cross to prove that to us. God, the king of the universe, the creator and purpose of all creation, the one who holds all things together, he relates to us. He relates to us and that gives us hope. What hope we have in Jesus. The next thing we see about Jesus in our passage is this. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. Verse 18 says this, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So we see in the beginning of this verse that Paul says Jesus is, the, uh, Jesus is the head of the body, the church. And throughout a lot of Paul's writing, he talks about the church as a body. Now when I say church, I don't mean this building, I don't mean 7200 Providence Road, I mean the people of God, those who have committed their lives to Jesus. This is the church, this is what Paul is talking about. 
And he likens followers of Jesus to the body of Christ. So each one of them having their own gifts from the spirit that are to be used for building up the body. This means that some of us in this room are elbows, some of us in this room are shoulders. Um, And we need to use those things for building up the body of Christ. I like to think that I'm a strong bicep, but in all actuality, I'm like an eyebrow or like a big toe or something. I actually had a student say that I was an eyebrow hair, so I was very encouraged by that. (sighs) But that's beside the point. The point that Paul makes is that we are the body, but Christ is the head. He's reigning over and is the ruler of the church. And not only this, but since he's the head, he's the church's very source of life. And as the head, Christ directs and governs the body. At Mercy Church, we have a really simple way of saying this. We say that we are Jesus-ruled, elder-led, and congregationally accountable. And we say this because this is us together affirming as the church that Jesus is the head of our church. All right, Paul continues about this, and in verse 18 he writes, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So we've talked about this word firstborn already. We've talked about how Paul uses the word to show the sovereignty of Jesus being the firstborn of creation, but here he uses it a little differently. He says that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. And this goes right along with Jesus being the head of the church, because what Paul is saying here is that Jesus is the first or the inaugurator of God's new creation. So when Jesus rose from the dead, he defeated sin and death once and for all and became the forerunner of the church in the sense that when he rose, he didn't die again. He rose from the grave and conquered death and then we see, we see him ascend to the Father in Acts chapter one. And what we believe is that as followers of Jesus, we have become a new creation and that we too will live because Jesus lives. That's John 14, 19. And we see a picture of this new creation in Jesus because he is the firstborn from the dead. Jesus says in Revelation 1, 17 and 18, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus says, I am alive and I am alive forevermore. I will never die again. And that's what Paul means when he says that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Paul goes on in verses 19 and 20 and he writes, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So we talked about verse 19 already and how that points to the reality that Jesus is God. But look at verse 20, it says that through Jesus, God has reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So this point is clear. We as God's people, the church, were at one moment separated from God, but Jesus made peace by dying for us on the cross. We deserve death because of sin, but Christ made a way for us to have life by shedding his blood for us. Because of his death, there is a church. Because of his death, there is a redeemed people of God. And we're gonna get into that point more in just a second, but what I'm trying to show you is that very simply, Jesus is the head of the church. This is the point that I'm getting at. He's the head of the church, and he shows that by being the head of the body, by being the inaugurator of a new creation through his resurrection, and by making peace through shedding his blood on the cross. So here's why the reality of Jesus being uh, the head of the church gives us hope today. Because he is the head of the church, It means that God's plan for the church will never be thwarted. 
It means that followers of Jesus can have assurance that God is going to continue to build us up and ultimately one day bring us to himself. We have a representative in Jesus who has gone before us and who was raised from the dead and conquered sin and the grave once and for all. And so no matter what suffering or persecution the church may face, we are fighting a battle from a place of victory because of the one who is at the helm. When we sing victory belongs to Jesus in our church, y'all, it's because victory belongs to Jesus. And Jesus says to Peter in Matthew 16, he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Because Jesus is the head of the church, we as the church have victory over sin and death. What hope we have in Jesus. And here's the final thing that we see about Jesus in our passage. It's this. Jesus is the sacrificial peace offering for our sin. Jesus is the sacrificial peace offering for our sin. The last three verses of this passage say this. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. In verses 21 and 22, Paul simply lays out the gospel. He says to the Colossian church, because of sin, you were once alienated and separated from God. This is the reality of every soul because of the fall that happened in Genesis 3. Y'all know the story, Adam and Eve ate from the fruit that God forbid them from eating. They followed Satan's advice rather than God's command and sin entered into the world and broke it. And now like a virus, sin has been spread to every single person throughout all of history. And it's broken our bodies, it's broken our relationships with one another and it has broken our relationship with God. And what this church at Colossae deserved and what we deserve because of our sin is death apart from God. Like what we deserve is hell because of sin. But our God, Jesus Christ, came to us in the form of a man. He lived a sinless and perfect life because he's God. Nobody else could do that. None of us can do that. And undeservingly in the greatest act of love that has ever happened in all of history, God laid down his life and took on death for undeserving sinners. Jesus went to the cross for us. In the Old Testament, you see that God's people had to kill an animal and shed blood in order to atone for their sins. It was a peace offering that made them right with God until they would inevitably sin again, and then the process would repeat. And because of our sin and our continual sin, Ultimately, what our sin was going to cost us was our blood. But Jesus stepped in and became our sacrificial peace offering by pouring out his blood for us on the cross. That's what Paul says in verses 21 and 22. And you see at the end of verse 22 that one day, because Jesus is our sacrificial peace offering, we who have placed our faith in Jesus will be presented to God as holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We see a beautiful glimpse of this in Revelation 21. This is what Revelation 21, one through five says. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Jesus is the sacrificial peace offering for our sin. And if you're not already seeing it, here's why this gives us hope. This gives us hope because it means that the God who we've been talking about, the one who is the king of the universe, the one who holds all things together, the one who is mighty and who is strong, the one who's the head of the church and who reigns and rules over us, the one who spoke and created. This God loves us. We don't deserve it, but God loves us. Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Y'all, what God is like this? What God looks on his creation with favor and love to the point that he would lay his own life down for them? I know only one, and his name is Jesus. What hope we have in Jesus. In verse 23, Paul writes to the Colossian church, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Y'all, Paul is using a bit of rhetoric here. He's saying, like, based on everything that I've just said, I'm sure that you're going to continue to place your hope solely in Jesus. How could they not? Like, this is such good news that it only makes sense that they would continue to, to trust in Jesus amid this false teaching. But while he means it as rhetoric, he also means it as a plea and a warning to this church. He's saying, I'm sure that you will continue in the faith, but also please continue in the faith because Jesus is the only true hope that you have. Everything else will lead to death. You see, brothers and sisters, like life gets hard. There are moments when our faith may waver and where we may be tempted to place our hope in something other than Jesus. And in those moments, we have to be reminded of the truth of the gospel and come back to God's word and to look at who Jesus is and to see what he has done for us. And when we do that, we will see that there's nothing in this world that even comes close to the hope that we have in Christ. He is our one true hope because he's the only one who can offer us life. And so my plea for you today, brothers and sisters, is this, continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. Don't shift from the hope of the gospel. Place your hope in Jesus today. And if you've never placed your hope in Jesus, he's offering you an invitation. And all you have to do is to, re to receive this invitation is to believe in who he is and what he's done for you. Jesus is God. He's the head of the church and he's the sacrificial peace offering for our sin. He loves you and he wants to be in a relationship with you. And so I urge you to place your hope in Jesus. 
There's a song that uh, we sometimes sing here at Mercy. It's called, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. It was a hymn written in the early 1900s by a woman named Helen Limmel. I think that's how you say her last name. And what I wanna do as we close our time is I just want to read over you the refrain from this song because it speaks to what we've been, what we've been talking about today. Um, and so here's what I want you to do. I wanna I want ask if everyone would close their eyes as we close our time. Um, and I just wanna read these lyrics over you and then I'll pray for you. But y'all let these words sink in as you reflect on everything that we learned about who Jesus is. Let these words sink in as you place your hope in Jesus today. Here's what it says. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Jesus, would you help us turn our eyes to you today? God, in a world that constantly begs for our attention and for our affections, in a world that constantly doubts God, Lord, we are tempted to shift our hope to something other than you. But as we heard today and as we see from your word, heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will not pass away. And what your word says is that Jesus is God, that he is the head of the church and that he is the sacrificial peace offering for our sin. Jesus, you are who we need. And so would we place our hope in you today? And would we be reminded today of the great love that you have for us? You have showed that by going to the cross for us. Thank you, Jesus. We love you and we pray this in your name. Amen.